You are listening to Let's Be Honest with your host, Just Jonda. Hello, and this is a special Let's Be Honest uh, legal breakdown number 15. The R. Kelly verdict is in. Now, we were coming back anyway to talk about the closing, but let's just get right into it. Okay, so we know that a singer, Robert Sylvester Kelly, he's 54 years old. He's known and has been known for his entire career as R. Kelly. He's been charged in multiple places, but the, the trial that was going on right now is in the federal court in New York. And in this particular court in Brooklyn, he was charged with um oh my gosh it's so much going on he was charged with one count of racketeering and 11 counts of sex trafficking under the man act well the verdict is in r kelly has been convicted of all of those charges he was indeed convicted of racketeering of running a criminal enterprise as well as the 11 counts of sex trafficking under the man act so let's just jump right in this trial has gone on for six weeks there were 45 prosecution witnesses 11 of them or actual accusers, six of them alleged they were underage at the time of their sexual contact with Robert Kelly. Defense, the defense put on five witnesses. They, on Sunday, the day before their case, the defense case was supposed to start. So this is Sunday the 19th going into Monday the 20th. They submitted an 11th hour witness list to the prosecution, which Judge Ann Donnelly did not take kindly to. There were three witnesses on on that list. Now, they began their case on Monday with one of the witnesses not even being there, and the defense said they were still trying to get the money together to get that defendant there. So let me tell you about these witnesses. One was a childhood friend. Another was a police officer who, well, he'd gotten convicted of some offenses. He even testified he had never seen Robert Kelly with a young girl, but then on cross, well, he'd said he'd never seen him with an underage girl, but then on cross-examination admitted, okay, well, he'd seen him with Aaliyah. Well, she's underage, right? Nobody said that you saw him doing anything to her. And this is what happens when people are so busy trying to help, or so they think, they overstate things and then they end up looking like liars. Then what had to be my favorite witness was his former accountant who used a picture of a red cart octopus as a demonstration of how 
different people were paid. Not a graft, not a flow chart, you know, pretty much anything that we normally see people use in court. I know that I've seen people use quite a few things and an octopus, yeah, not so much. So <laughs> it was it was a rather to take a quote from NPR, quite an unfortunate uh, quite an unfortunate exhibit, especially when you consider the fact that your person is charged with running a criminal enterprise, which brings to mind a picture of this person in the middle with all of these tentacles going out in different directions, right? You've got all of these people, your roadies, your managers, your attorneys, all of these people who are doing their various jobs to make the criminal enterprise run properly so that the master, the mastermind, the main person, the head of the criminal enterprise, in this case, Robert Sylvester Kelly, could indulge his, uh, shall we say, his interesting, often illegal predilections. So very strange cast of characters. So ultimately, they put on five, they wrapped up their case within a day and a half, roughly. So, and, and R. Kelly didn't testify. So, I don't know. It sounds like if nothing else, if they can't come up with anything else to argue, I suppose if maybe the defense felt like they'd hand him a gift and make it so that he could go with the catch-all that most clients ultimately end up uh, arguing on appeal, ineffective assistance of counsel. Now, I'm not saying that that is what happened here. I'm just saying that given the case they put on, maybe that's a gift they were giving them on purpose. So let's get back to the verdict. The jury made up of seven men and five women who were partially sequestered throughout this. So we really didn't know much more about them other than the fact that there are seven men, five women at the throughout the trial. We didn't know ages, racial makeups, jobs, the types of things we typically know about a jury. Didn't get any of that, uh, which is fine because given some of the shenanigans that went on before the trial started with allegations of things that still are in the process of being resolved as it relates to uh potential witness tampering and threats made to individuals that are, con and they were made by individuals who are connected to Kelly, it obviously made sense uh, to at least try to get through this trial with the least amount of drama possible uh, to have the, to have as little information as possible. So, the jury went out on Friday afternoon. They came back ready with a verdict at, oh, maybe about uh, roughly 3 p.m. Well, it was read at about roughly 3 p.m. Eastern time. So they probably came back right after 2, um, 2 o'clock Eastern time. And uh, R. Kelly 
Robert Kelly was there with his defense team led by Devereaux Koenig in a navy blue suit, just standing there stoic, which is what I typically advise people to do. No reaction. It's If it's great, then nobody's going to be upset with you if you're happy about it. But if it doesn't go your way, by all means, don't start throwing things and, and punch me out. So, uh, so total, they, they, uh, I would say they were in for roughly nine hours of deliberation. Now, the charges, as we talked about early on these charges in total. So let's say he was given his time consecutively welcome dove and missy let's say he was given his time consecutively he would face up to about life <laughs> because most of these charges carry 10 years or more the rico charge alone carries up to 20 and then the other charges carry up to 10 years each so realistically it is over 100 years if it were consecutive is that what he's going to be sentenced to absolutely not they'll do sentencing guidelines look at his record which technically he does not have one because he was found not guilty in the case back in 2006 and his other cases have not gone forward yet so most of what is going to happen as it relates to his relates to his sentencing i think is going to be less about the guidelines and really more about what each party argues in their pre-sentencing motions i'm i'm sorry in their pre-sentencing memoranda and ultimately when they put on their sentencing in court now that being said you get convicted of this many charges of this nature the government is going to be looking to make an example of him so even if his guidelines don't support a lot of time they're going to be asking for a lot of time and based on a lot of rulings that this judge has made in this case in the prosecution's favor in terms of the things that she's allowed in uh when there was arguments about um about audio recordings of him ranting and just a few other early motions that went on. Something tells me that if the prosecution really goes hard and the defense doesn't bring every heart, flower, tear, mama, you name it, in there uh, saying just anything they can about him, he could be facing some pretty serious time. Now, what's really interesting is some of the comments that were made when he came out, when he came out of court, welcome Braun 2001, when he came out of court, his defense attorney, Thomas Farinella, he, he had a defense team made up of three people. And this was uh, sort of a team that was kind of thrown together around June. So this isn't his original defense team. So his defense attorney tweeted a statement saying the way the government used a racketeering statute was an aberration. Based on a series of independent relationships and events patched together like different types of fabric and passed it off as silk. Well, 
as a fellow barrister, I'll just have to say to Mr. Farinella, maybe they should have said some things like this when they were in court. Maybe this beautiful poetic prose that you're using on Twitter are the types of arguments that you and Devereaux Koenig should have made instead of doing a closing argument, comparing him to Martin Luther King, Hugh Hefner, and Mike Pence. I don't think you're going to get many points with a jury when you have spent the entirety of the trial with your defense not being a whole lot substantive, but simply to berate witness after witness to paint them as groupies and uh, people who were just out to get him. And then by the time you get to closing, after saying that, uh, I agree with you, Bron. Bron is in the chat. He's saying his ass is going down. He need to know this ain't right. Um, the things that they were arguing, it was very dis distasteful. And don't get me wrong. I'm a defense attorney. It is when you have certain kinds of clients, you are going to be put in a situation where you are probably going to make some arguments that may make you want to throw up in your mouth a little bit, but you have to do what you have to do. But at a certain point, you have to come up with something better than just going at every single witness with the same thing. In fact, if that's the only thing that you're going to use to try to undermine the witnesses, you don't have anything substantive to try to undermine them with, like you weren't there or you know just anything, then you might even be better off just not crossing them at all because if it is a an alleged victim who comes off believable to the jury you're just going to piss them off and make them hate your client so if you really don't have anything substantive to argue them about to try to argue with them about to try to undermine them you're better off just getting just waiting to your closing and making an all-encompassing argument and lumping them in the same category because that's what you're doing anyway. But you kind of undermine that when you say, well, he was a playboy like Hugh Hefner. So, I mean, that's why they all wanted him. Or flippantly saying, well, so we can't call you know, a woman can't call the man daddy now. I mean, Mike Pence calls his wife mother. Really? Is that the comparison we make? And you know that things, or at least you should know that things aren't going well when you compare them to Martin Luther King and you can audibly hear people in the gallery going, oh no. <laughs> so, I mean, I can only imagine. I feel like I, I need to use one of my sound effects for this one. Let's see. Hmm, maybe this one. Uh -oh. <laughs> I mean, come on. What, like, really? Is that what we thought would happen? I mean, you almost go where you're just sitting there like, did he really say that? I couldn't believe it. I had to go and look at it for myself but that is really what happened so back to uh to some of the more substantive things uh 
The judge did give them until November 1st to file any post-trial motions. There is nothing unusual about that. Most of that is going to be some of their uh, some of their pre-sentence memoranda. There will also be, um, uh, I suspect that if there's there's any particular issues that the prosecution felt, uh, I'm sorry, that the defense in particular felt that the court needs to be, re needs to revisit about some rulings made or some objections or even the tiniest thing that they could find out about the jury. Um, maybe that there was some type of tampering or they found out that a juror was talking to anything, anything that they could do um, an 11th hour um, prayer on uh, they're going to do. Just give me a second. I need to find out. I was reading so much at once. I forgot to check to see when the sentencing was. I believe it is... Um, I could have sworn I heard somebody say something like maybe November 18th, something to that effect. Uh, let's see. And then I will get back to this. Well, at any rate, I believe it is. I know that I feel like somebody said it was around uh, November 18th. Uh, Missy, who is my partner in crime from one of from my housewives episodes, is in the room. Missy, can you do a quick Google and just type it in the chat uh, or shoot me a text of when the sentencing is? But I do believe that it, I recall that it was sometime around late November. At any rate. Um, there was lots of talk afterwards because we know that this entire thing isn't over. There's still more cases coming. So in a news conference outside of the court, the, the U.S. attorney, uh, Jacqueline Kasulis, talked about the jury delivering a powerful message. And I think that she is right about that. Now, there's going to be people who feel a certain way about this no matter what it's kind of like the bill cosby situation sure we and, and i have to say this to people all the time the fact that bill cosby went home is a function of the system it is because they should not have charged him in the first place because of a deal that was made prior it had nothing to do with whether or not this man was a serial predator he admitted to spiking women's drinks or at the very least sharing drugs like quaaludes with them. And then if a woman just happened to be incapacitated, so be it. So some people want to split hairs and say, well, they were fine with taking the drugs with him. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine with having a couple of drinks with you. Me agreeing to having a couple of drinks with you, or if in one of these instances, not saying I would do this, but even if I agreed to pop a couple of whatever you've got with you, that's not the same thing as agreeing to have sex with you when I am incapacitated or possibly even unconscious. 
two different things. And so I think that that's what we're talking about with R. Kelly, especially when people want to say, well, what about the parents? What did, why didn't the parents do this or that? That's a different conversation for a different day. Are some of these parents, you know, there's a couple of words that I could come up with for um, my opinion on some of these parents. Uh, there are a few in particular. In fact, some of the ones who were the most vocal. Does that change what happened? The manipulation, the just the sick way that they were treated. Does that change any of that? Absolutely not. So I think that when we start assigning blame, we need to really take a look at whether or not we are doing that at the expense of victims. Because as I've talked about here, if you've listened to my previous episodes on this case, in my opinion, even giving these women herpes was a means of control. Because if you are a young girl, you don't know very much, you don't have access to a lot of information, not even a real doctor because he's having his doctor prescribe you pills. You look at that as nobody's ever going to want me now. I'm spoiled goods. And if you have a man that's telling you, but I want you, I'm going to take care of you. I want you forever. Even if he's manipulative, he's a piece of crap. He yells at you. He does all of these things in your mind. Nobody else is going to want you. So if you don't believe that anybody else is going to want you, that is also a part of of that manipulation, a part of that control. We see that when we talk about battered women. It is the same thing when it comes to mental and psychological manipulation and control. And when you combine that with deprivation, when we talk about not giving people substance, uh, sustenance on a regular basis, then adding sort of a hint of blackmail to it because you're taking pictures of them because you're doing uh you're you're doing these um uh you're doing these sex tapes with them all of that contributes to why you wouldn't leave and adds to the control so the next two things we're going to talk about and then we're going to wrap this up so this isn't going to be a long one the first thing is to discuss um, what I mentioned before in terms of my concerns about the prosecution's case. I still have those concerns, even though they got the verdict that they wanted in this. I still have those concerns if the right person gets a hold of this for appeal, maybe not the current team that he has, because I don't know in fairness to them if it was just the largesse of the case in relation to when this legal team was put together or um, just based on some of their histories, maybe their experience in, in federal court. I don't know what it was, but I still have some concerns about the government's ability to meet the standard required for declaring 
R. Kelly and Robert Kelly and his cohorts a criminal enterprise. Do I believe that this man is scum? Absolutely. Do uh, from the standpoint of keeping him away from young girls, I, I am all about it. However, from the strictly legal standpoint, just putting my attorney hat on, I still uh, am troubled by the uh, their ability to meet this standard and for it to withstand appeal because ultimately the individuals who were involved that make up this criminal enterprise, or, well, and I'm going to, instead of saying allege, at least for the time being, the jury has found this was a criminal, criminal enterprise. The individuals who make up this criminal enterprise are people who through the normal course of their duties would be doing the same thing anyway. What the indictment said was that these individuals in their capacity as his, um, you know, people who work for him, his security, his roadies, his manager, his lawyers, his accountants, all of these people were uh, this criminal enterprise because they worked to build his brand to help make him famous and keep him famous so that he could indulge in his criminal activity. But technically, all of those people would have been engaged in building his brand and keeping his brand and, and making him famous and keeping him famous so that he's famous. Because when someone is an entertainer, that's your job. That's what Beyonce's people would do. That's what Oprah's people would do. That's what, you know, who knows, maybe I'd be blessed someday to have people do that for me. So it is not in the traditional sense like we have, um, like we would have, um, Let's say, I know Braun is a tough one. And trust me, I am on your side here in terms of how you feel about him. So I'm just, you know, right now I'm, I'm just being uh, just John to the attorney. But um, I, th I think so all of the, in, in the traditional sense, especially when we look at how and why RICO came about, most of the individuals involved in the criminal enterprises, in the criminal enterprise that a jury would typically be looking at, even if they had jobs with titles, their job, those jobs were covers. And some of their jobs weren't even covers because this, this is a charge that's typically used to go, uh, at least in its inception, was used to go after organized crime. Most of the individuals who were involved in the various levels levels that made up the criminal enterprise, their jobs on their face were illegal. An enforcer, there's nothing that's legal about being an enforcer. And even if you're the consigliere, you are, you know, there's a lot of things that you do that are way far foul of legal. Um, you know, your accountant is probably not just counting the money, they're probably laundering the money. So we know that there are a lot of things that um, go on 
that uh, when you're talking about a criminal enterprise in the traditional sense, that don't exactly pass the smell test here. And um, it, and I just feel like there was a better case to be argued on his behalf in terms of dismantling that. Now, did they prove the other the other piece? Because there's when you're talking about RICO, there's two things that you have to prove. You got to prove that a criminal enterprise existed, and then you need the underlying acts. Well. You only need two. The prosecution presented fourteen. The jury, uh, the jury, agreed or uh, found that twelve of them were on point to their liking. So we knew that there would be no problem there because out of fourteen, you can at least find two. They found twelve, so that's that's fine. But as even though those things are illegal, and this is where I think a good grounds for appeal comes from, even if those things are illegal and the jury rightfully found, because it's a matter of opinion and they're the trier's effect, so they decided out of those 14 underlying X, they decided that 12 of them they believed, and, and that's fine. I mean, they only needed to believe two, so the prosecution more than covered themselves. Good evening, Slevel. The issue that I would have and, and that I would argue is that while they may have made the second part uh, and did a good job improving the second part of RICO, not so much the first part, which is the criminal enterprise. And so the concern that I would have especially if I were, um, you know, especially if I were arguing this and I would, it, this would be where most of my arguments would lie is that because of the way the prosecution presented the case and giving such, you know, giving so many underlying acts, which, which isn't a bad thing, but that it is entirely possible that the jury got so caught up in, in the, the power of, all of those underlying acts that they felt absolutely happened, that they really reached on the first part of the statute, which is the criminal enterprise. The man act, now, as I also said, um, I believed that if this, if the jury convicted him, it's because they wanted to. And given that they were only um, they were only deliberating for less than nine hours. They wanted to convict. This is a jury that walked into the room knowing exactly what they wanted to do. And I'm not saying that they had to be back there hours and hours. They listened to this for six weeks. I mean, how much more do they, you know, maybe they just felt like, I'm good. I don't need to debate this all day, all night and rerun every single piece of the evidence. That's what the trial is for. A jury is not required to go in the back and, and in their deliberations peel apart every single thing that they were told in the courtroom. I mean, if there's somebody that doesn't understand something or people that have some concerns, they might discuss it. But, you know, if everybody feels like they reasonably understood what was explained to them the first time, they don't have to go back and beat it to death. So, um, and, I, and it sounds like that's probably not what happened with charges uh, this complicated and this amount of evidence 
the they spent that nine hours literally uh, taking those jury instructions and going through each one of those allegations and saying, okay, yay or nay, do we believe it? Do we not believe it? Because nine hours is really not enough time or well, a little under nine hours and we're talking lunch, bathroom breaks and all of that. It's just not enough time for them to really have done anything more than that. And that's fine. Cause again, they listened to this stuff for six weeks. We didn't. So, um, now I was about to mention the man act. I still maintain what I said there. I think that if they were going to convict him of anything, it would be the Rico charge which they did uh the man act again a bit of a stretch but they convicted him and if if they felt this was necessary to get a predator off the street so be it because the reality of it is is that unfortunately however confusing a lot of this may have been for some people in terms of the way that new york charged him compared to the way the other states offenses are in terms of just being straightforward about you know sexual abuse and and um solicitation i think that the message here and that much i do agree with the prosecution i think uh, i'm talking about the press conference afterwards that the message that this jury was sending was clear and that was bottom line is they wanted to get this dude off the street that they believed that he was a predator who had gotten away with it for almost three decades and that they wanted to get him off the street. And people can debate all day long about how that happened or why they ha that happened. But that is ultimately what this came down to, even though it was a really roundabout way of getting to it that doesn't exactly make me feel 100% comfortable um, in, in terms of the law, but these, you know, it happens in the inverse as well. When, uh, defense attorneys argue enough to nullify juries. So it, you know, it happens. Okay. So finally, the final thing I wanted to just cover, just so that, you know, looking ahead, um, the next thing is going to be sentencing. It's going to be a couple of months from now. And of course, your girl will be here with you when that comes up. I doubt that he will be transferred to Chicago or Minnesota to deal with those issues until sentencing is, is resolved. It just doesn't make sense uh, between the expense of it and COVID because he was held in uh, in Chicago in particular for damn near two years before this case came up. So, and they let the feds get to theirs first. So they'll get them when they get them. So I don't think R. Kelly is leaving New York anytime soon. It just doesn't make any sense. Right now, what he has in Chicago is he's got a federal matter there because of allegations that he and two others fixed the trial in Cook County. So that's one that we really haven't talked about. So I'm definitely going to dig deeper into that because I knew about the sexual assault charges and that related to the New York piece, there um, are some allegations of witness tampering. In fact, one of the prosecution's witnesses is, uh, has already, he already has a deal in place as it relates to that. So 
that one is uh is interesting but he also has four separate indictments alleging sexual abuse but i believe it's more than that because uh the woman out of chicago the cook county prosecutor in fact is the same one who dealt with the whole thing with jesse smollett smollett or smollett or however you say his name um she announced like 11 more indictments related to sexual assault. So it's uh, this four assaults, um, uh, you know, that's what NPR says, but I know that there were more. In fact, there was like a total of 22 charges coming out of the Cook County area because of the additional charges she added. So he's he's going to get hit hard there. And then there's a solicitation case uh, in Minnesota, and that does involve um, an underage victim as well. So no matter what happens, uh, it's it's kind of like, you know, grandma says, well, I don't know what happened or who shot John. Well, this, that's the kind of situation this is. No matter what happens, what we do know is that R. Kelly is not getting out of jail anytime soon. It's just a matter of who keeps him and for how long as he goes through these many trials and based on all of these charges and the amount of time it's going to take to work through them, he is going to be going through some type of court hearing unless there is an agreement to pull some of these things together for at least the next two years. And that doesn't even include appeals. That's just getting through each trial because if he's got uh, a possible 22 indictments in Cook County and they involve different witnesses and different sets of facts, then that trial could go on just as long, if not longer than this one. And then of course, you know, going just going through the deliberation process, sentencing and all of that, and then turning around and going to Minneapolis to do the whole thing again. So whatever happens with him, the first level of um, cases, if you will, won't be resolved, I would imagine, until maybe 2023. And, th and then, of course, there will be appeals going on in mul multiple directions. But in the meantime, nobody is giving him bond. So he's going to just be locked up for the foreseeable future. And if any of his appeals even work out, we know it's not going to be all of them. So I think it's safe to say that nobody expects to see for R. Kelly to see the light of day any time soon, um, no less than, uh, I would say, just on these federal charges alone, no less than like 15 to 20 years just on the federal charges, and then it just gets piled on from there. So that is what I have. Feel free, as always, to follow me on social media. You can DM me with questions anytime. You can also email me, especially if there's interesting cases that you'd like me to cover, or if you have some insight into the uh, to the topics that we have already done, make sure that it is real information. I do check my sources. So if I ignore you, it's because I thought your stuff was dumb. No, it's because I thought it wasn't true. But anyway... <laughs> 
but I'm messing with you, but no, I don't record. I don't report crap. This is not that kind of channel. So I thank you all very much for hanging with you girl tonight. I know that this has been talked about on many channels all over the place, but I hope you got something here that maybe you didn't get there or you just enjoy listening to me talk. And as always, you can follow me at L-E-T-S-B-E-H-O-N-E-S-T-J-J, but also for Let's Be Honest. And that is on both uh, Instagram and Twitter. We do more lighter subjects as well as stuff like this on the Fashion and Drama Diaries every day. Anytime there's stuff going on in entertainment, pop culture, news and politics, and you can see the link for that in our information box. If you are on Apple, iTunes, make sure you go there, leave us five stars and uh, some comments. And you can subscribe to me on any of your podcast networks. As always, if you're thinking about it, chances are I'm thinking about it and want to talk about it with you or we'll do an we'll do a legal breakdown about it and really get into it like we did with this R. Kelly case and like we will continue to do with several cases coming up. We know that the uh, Ahmaud Arbery case is right on the horizon. So that is definitely one we'll be looking for a start date on. And I will be still continue to update you on the um, on the Theranos case as well. It's just that R. Kelly has taken up a lot of time. <laughs> At any rate, thank you very much for hanging with me tonight. Tell your friends and share this channel.